are in Ezekiel, and last week we finished chapter 5, and we're going to start on chapter 6 tonight. However, 6, 7, and 8 are an unrelieved series of disasters. I keep doing that. And the reason I do that is because my translation uses disasters, whereas the underlying Hebrew is evil. Does everybody understand why disaster is not a good word? It's an astrology word, disaster. The stars are against you. So it's actually not a kosher word. Perfectly good word, but it's origins are astrological as opposed to something else. Anyway, so there is going to be an unrelieved series of calamities for the next several chapters. And in order to understand that, we have to go back to chapter 5 and take a look at why God regards the things that he is promising to do to Israel and Judah as just. Everybody says God is just, and I certainly agree with that. And we're going to have a long stretch of death and destruction and exile and all sorts of stuff like that. So in order to understand why we're having this long stretch, you need to go back to chapter 5. The comment was that last week we ended the wave of God's fury is beating against the dam of his mercy. And at some point the dam is going to break. So back in Ezekiel 5, 5, and this is your setup as to why God is going to sand them off flat and putty over the hole as we get down below. So verse 5, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you. In order to, again, understand this, if you go back to Genesis 15, where God is making his covenant with Abraham, one of the things that he says is, your people are going to get this whole land, but not yet. And the reason that they're not going to get it yet is because, quote, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So the Amorites have not yet descended to depravity sufficiently that God feels justified in wiping them out and giving the land to you. But the way they're going, they're going to get there. And so you don't get the land right away. You'll get it once their iniquity is full and they have come up to the point where I can't stand it anymore. And at that point, I will bring you into the land and give it to you. And your instructions are going to be, wipe out everything that breathes. Mm -hmm. So what God is saying here in Ezekiel 5 is, okay, 
I set you among the nations, and furthermore, I gave you the Torah, which is my instructions on how to have a good society and how to live a good life. And not only have you not followed my Torah, you haven't even followed the standards of civilization of the pagan nations around you. You are so bad that even the pagan nations are looking at you and saying, oh, what is this kind of stuff? That's the setup as to why God at this point in history says, enough. And what we're going to do is, as I say, we're going to sand it all down and we're going to putty the hole over because you guys are a blot on my name because you have a covenant with me and you carry my name. And if I don't do something about this, my name will be slandered, quote God. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go into a litany of all of the things that are going to happen. And it's just going to be an unrelieved series of calamities. I don't know about you, but when I read scripture, I tend to read it in chunks. And sort of drop into the middle of a chapter like Ezekiel 6 and 7. And you don't get a run at it from 5. You sort of at sea about context. With that set up, now we can go down to chapter 6. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altar shall become desolate and your incense altar shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So obviously, and I think we mentioned this last time, we have this phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord. That is Exodus speak, where Moses is dealing with Pharaoh. And as God uses Moses to bring calamity after calamity upon Egypt, You have this refrain, they will know that I am the Lord. So when God turns and uses the same phraseology against his own people that he used against Egypt, you know it's pretty bad. Comment was that the idea of your works being blotted out, this in many ways feels like Yeshua talking to the religious establishment in Israel, and he says, there's going to come a time when the door is going to be closed and you're going to be outside and you're going to want to come in and I'm going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And the key there is workers of iniquity. The key here is idol worship. Now, full stop. I don't know whether you remember, Matthew gave a sermon several months ago and he said something that I didn't know 
and he's a competent historical researcher, so I'm reasonably confident it's correct. The spiritual world is more than just God and angels. You've got all sorts of spiritual beings that are meddling with us and with the world. So the idea that when you go into idol worship, that you are simply speaking into the atmosphere or into the ether and nothing is going on is not correct. There are intelligent beings that you can connect with. And Matthew's comment was, which I thought was very interesting, is after the resurrection in the East, spiritual revelation stopped. And the example he used was the oracle at Delphi, a Greek oracle. This pagan king went to get a reading from the oracle, and the oracle says, we've been trying. The line's gone dead. We can't get anything. And I'm assuming that's correct. As I say, Matthew talked about it in a sermon several months ago, and his research is usually pretty reliable. So I'm going with that. Now, Israel is in the land. It is land that was occupied by pagan deities before Israel came in. And you remember in the Torah, one of the things that Moses says is if you find a city that has gone into idol worship, not only do you go in and you destroy everything that breathes, you level the city and you set it up so that nobody can ever rebuild that city. And this is genealogy, this is not scripture. I firmly believe that what we're dealing with is a territorial demon. And you see those in the book of Daniel. Remember when Daniel is praying and Gabriel comes to answer his prayer? And he said, I started out 21 days ago and would have been here sooner except the prince of Persia delayed me and I had to get Michael to come and fight for me so I could get through to answer your prayer. I regard that as a territorial demon. Having said that, what you've got in Israel is there were well-established territorial demons that were worshipped by the Amorites or the Canaanites or any of the ites that were in the land. And so what God says, I want you to wipe them all out. I don't want you to marry any of them. I don't want you to trade with them, nothing. I want them all wiped out because they have become so corrupt that they cannot be salvaged. However, those spiritual entities didn't go away. The people were slain, or some of them were, they left some. And what winds up happening is Israel, being spiritually sensitive, connected with these various unclean spirits that were residual in the land after Joshua. And so what wound up happening is you wound up having worship in high places all over the place. You had sacrifices to idols and you had idol worship going. And the reason for that is the spiritual beings they were connecting to are real. They weren't just doing mumbo jumbo into the air and not expecting anything to happen, things were happening. Now, one of the things that happens in pagan worship, I'm sure most of you know this, is you wind up connecting to a demon 
that feeds your area of weakness. Now we're talking in Musar. Everybody has areas where we're out of balance. And if you're out of balance in a particular area and you hook up to a demon that reinforces that out of balance, what happens is your measurement slides clear over against the stop. And what I'm saying to you is, when you have this smorgasbord of demons that you can worship, you can find one that will let you do pretty much anything and will cater to whatever weakness you have. So the idea here is Israel, by going deep into demon worship or idolatry, what they've done is not everybody has the same weakness, They've got this proliferation of high places where people go to sacrifice. And we're not talking about animal sacrifices, we're talking about human sacrifice. You've got temple prostitution. And temple prostitutes are not ladies who have decided that they can make a better living on the street. These are slaves. People that have been taken in slavery and they've been put into temple prostitution. Boys, girls, everything. So what's going on in this idol worship is the most foul corruption that you can imagine. And what God is saying back in Ezekiel 5 is you guys are even worse than the pagans around you. And what I'm suggesting to you is that is a function of Israel's special spiritual sensitivity. They started off having God with them, so they're spiritually sensitive, they're connected, they're attuned. And so if they get connected to the wrong thing, it is more potent than even the pagans. So what's happening here is God is saying in chapter 6, I am going to wipe it all clean. And furthermore, I am going to stack the dead bodies of everybody who worshipped an idol in front of his shrine. Lots of people, when they read things like, oh, you didn't follow my laws. That's true, but not following the laws is not the problem here. The problem is, by not following the laws, they have gotten into all sorts of scummy corruption. And the laws of God are designed to keep you out of that stuff. So when you abandon the law of God, you wind up going into that stuff And God says it started here when you left the Torah. But just leaving the Torah isn't the thing that is getting me to sand you off. It's where you wound up because you left the Torah. Because it reads like, well, shoot, every one of God's rules is capital punishment. And there are sects of Christianity that believe that. You eat a snail. Capital punishment. No, that's not what's going on. What's going on is... By leaving his Torah, you eventually wind up in really bad places to the point where God says, I can't get them back. And what we're going to do is we're going to wipe them out. And as the United States is leaving its Christian roots, what we're finding out is the same stuff happens. As I have said many times, most of the unaccompanied minors coming across the southern border are for the sex trade. The flood of them is flesh trade. And 
the fact that we as a nation are now encouraging that is, as I say, Ezekiel 6 territory. Verse 8, Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations come to escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. What God is saying is, Israel, you are my special people. And when you go off and do that, it breaks my heart. And the problem here that broke God's heart is not, no, gee, somebody ate a catfish. That's disobedience, sure. But that's not the problem here. The thing that breaks his heart is not that you got bacon breath. The thing that breaks his heart is where you have fetched up. Pick it up again in verse 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. So from exile, they will come to realize what they have lost. You've all read, I'm sure, Daniel's prayer. Daniel's a righteous man, but when Israel got sanded off, everybody went, Daniel included. So Daniel looks at the scroll of Jeremiah in exile, and he realizes that the 70 years is almost up. So what Daniel does is hits his face and prays and fasts, and what he does is he confesses the sins of his people. That's what God's talking about here. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they have committed and for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. In other words, I am not making idle promises. And of course, we all know that Nebuchadnezzar comes through a second time and pretty much destroys everything. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord God, Clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. In other words, the people who are there in the city during the siege will die by the sword. The people who escape from the city into the countryside are going to die by pestilence, disease. And anybody that winds up being left is going to starve to death. Thirteen. And you shall know that I am the Lord, when their slain lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them, and make the land desolate and waste. In all their dwelling places, from the wilderness of Rabbah, then they will know that I am the Lord." And when I started this off, this is just an unrelieved litany of bad stuff that's going to happen. And if you don't have the setup, then it could be regarded as 
God being harsh and unjust. He is being harsh. He's not being unjust. He's got good reasons for being ticked. By the way, some of your translations in verse 14 will have from the wilderness of Diblah instead of Riblah. The commentary I read was kind of interesting on that. Uh, you know, a resh and a dalit in Hebrew look very similar. The current Hebrew alphabet that is now used came from the Babylonian exile. So I am guessing, have no idea, and we don't have manuscripts, that this was originally written in Paleo-Hebrew. And it got uh, transcribed into the block alphabet that they got from Babylon. And in the block alphabet, the Resh and the Dalit look very similar. So if you had a scribe that was copying things sort of for the first time, it is entirely possible that he confused Resh and Dalit, and it's basically a typo. And the reason for that is Ribla exists, Dibla does not. And according to my commentary here, there is no such city as Dibla in the Bible. Ribla is a city up by the Euphrates River. So the idea is from the wilderness to Ribla is from the Egyptian desert all the way up to the Euphrates River, which, by the way, was the original land grant given by God. So now we're in chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. Notice again, what he's saying is, I've had it, lost patience, and the punishment that I am giving you is exactly what you deserve. Verse 4, and my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. All I can think of when I read this is Adonijah, David's son. You know, his first son, Absalom, rebelled and ran him out of town, and, and Absalom was killed by Joab, and David returned. So Adonijah is a striking young buck and thinks that he should be the next king. So he starts currying favor. As people come to Jerusalem to get judgment, he will sort of pull them off to one side and make judgments and so forth. And he had people running before him. So anyway, he holds this big barbecue in Rogel, one of the ravines around the central ridge in Jerusalem, the one on the west, not the one on the east. And he's got the commander of the army, Joab. He's got all sorts of people there, and they're having a feast, slaughtering animals and all that kind of stuff. And that's when Bathsheba goes to David and says, uh, didn't you promise that Solomon was going to be on the throne? And Nathan comes along and confirms it. And David, yeah, sure, right, okay. Well, how come Adonijah is setting him up? And so David sends out a proclamation. And all you can hear is barbecue bones hitting the deck as that barbecue splits. And 
everybody gets out of there because they no longer want to be associated with Adonijah. So here the idea of God punishing you in the midst of your abominations, they are going to be sacrificing and the sacrifices are just going to hit the deck because everybody is going to be leveled. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God, and my translation says disaster after disaster, but it's actually evil after evil. The Hebrew is raw. So, thus says the Lord God, evil after evil, behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult, and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to all your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. So this emphasis over and over again, what's happening here is measure for measure. Verse 10, Behold the day, behold it comes, your doom has come. The rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be any preeminence among them. This metaphor of the rod, what should that remind you of? Aaron's rod. Remember, the setup for Aaron's rod is Korah's rebellion, where Korah gets himself 250 guys and they come and say, Moses, you're taking too much on yourself. You need to spread some of this power around. And of course, we have the old thing where Moses has the ground opened up and swallow Korah. So what God then says, he didn't say this, it's not in scripture. This is Johnnyology. Moses, go over there and sit down. You're telling too many people. And what he has him do is each of the tribes brings a rod a staff, and they put them all before the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And the next day, the rod that blooms and blossoms is the rod of the chosen tribe. And of course, Aaron's rod is the one that buds. So what God does is God confirms his choice of Aaron by bringing forth life from something dead as opposed to having the ground opened up and fire coming down from heaven and all of the things that Moses was doing. So here what you've got is you have a rod of evil which has blossomed. So this rod of evil blossoming, just like Aaron's rod blossoming settled the argument, the argument over leadership was settled. And what I'm suggesting to you here is this rod of evil that is budding is also, it's settled. Now we're going to take action. Pick it up, ten and a half. The rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come, the day has arrived. 
Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. 13. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude, it shall not turn back. And because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. Two places to go here. One is obviously the Torah. In Israel, land was not sold, it was leased. And the maximum lease was 50 years. And at the end of 50 years, during Jubilee, everybody returned to his land. So what you were really selling was the crops that the land could bring forth. You weren't selling the land itself. Inside of cities, especially Levite cities, the rules were different. But this is what we're talking about. Second place you want to go, of course, is Jeremiah. Because remember, Jeremiah has a cousin who has a piece of land. And that cousin comes to him and says, I got this piece of land. You're the redeemer. Do you want to buy it? And Jeremiah says, yep, I'll buy it. And they write a deed and they put the deed in a jar. And they seal it and put it somewhere. And the message there is Israel is eventually going to come back. And this deed will be opened. And whoever the heirs of Jeremiah are will receive the title of this land. In other words, it's a message of hope. Nebuchadnezzar is cleaning the place off. There's going to be really, really bad times. But by being directed to sell this piece of land or redeem this piece of land, what God is saying is, you're going to come back. And what it's saying here where it says the buyer shall not rejoice and the seller shall not mourn, for the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. So what it's saying here is everybody is going and this 50-year return to the land business is not going to happen during the lifetimes of anybody that's alive right now. And so the idea that Ooh, I just bought this really cool piece of land. Hot dog. And I had to sell my family farm. And and what it's saying is none of that's going to happen because nobody is going to be redeeming anything for a while. Certainly not within the lifetimes of anybody reading this prophecy as it was given. Verse 14, maybe. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. For my wrath is upon their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city famine and pestilence devour. And if any survivors escape, they will be on the mountains, like doves of the valleys, all of them moaning, each one over his iniquity. All hands are feeble, and all knees turn to water. They put on sackcloth, and horror covers them. Shame is on all their faces and baldness on all their heads. Shame on their faces, baldness on their heads. Remember Ezekiel shaved himself with a sword? The idea being that the sword was going to shave Israel. And for a man having a shaved head and a shaved beard is a sign of shame. In fact, during the Korean War, American soldiers had buzz cuts, short hair. So they were fighting in Korea. And the communist propaganda was they have sent all their criminals over here to kill you. 
Because in that society, short hair was done to criminals as a mark of shame. So you have all these American soldiers who have buzz cuts, and the communists would say, oh, they've got all their prisoners here. These are all murderers and rapists. So that's what's being talked about here. Not murderers and rapists, but the bald heads. And then this idea, they have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle. One of the things that is going on is the idea that we're going to be able to throw these foreign invaders off. Remember, Jeremiah has to send a letter to the exiles saying, don't rebel. It isn't going to work. You're going to be there until God lets you out. So don't let anybody tell you that we can rebel. The same thing happens in Israel, land of Israel, where you've got some hotheads that want to rebel. So they're making ready the sword. But when Nebuchadnezzar's army comes, everybody loses courage. They all retreat into the city and are then destroyed as described here. Verse 19. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was a stumbling block of their iniquity. His beautiful ornament they used for pride and made their abominable images and their detestable things of it. Therefore I make it an unclean thing to them, and I will give it unto the hands of foreigners for prey, and to the wicked of the earth for spoil, and they shall profane it. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured places. Robbers shall enter and profane it. You all know Proverbs, and there's two Proverbs about wealth. One proverb says wealth is a strong city, and if you got wealth, things are good. Another one says, don't trust in riches. And I've explained this before, the circumstances are different. If you've got a healthy bank account and you get a flat tire, it's an inconvenience. If you don't have a healthy bank account and you get a flat tire, it is a calamity because you can lose a day's work, you may not be able to replace the tire, all those kinds of things. So in that case, your wealth is a strong city. The other one is here. You got all this wealth accumulated, and now you're up to your button Babylonians, and all of that wealth is going to do you absolutely zero good. So that's the second proverb. If you trust in wealth to deliver you, you're a fool. And so what Ezekiel is saying here is you're going to have all this gold and all these jewels and all this wealth that you've accumulated, and instead of using it for my purposes, you used it for idolatry and idol worship and so forth. Therefore, it is going to become detestable to you. I am going to give it to everybody, and you don't get any of it. And not only that, it isn't going to save you. You're not going to be able to eat it. Verse 23 Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city full of violence. So the idea of chains, obviously, are imprisonment or enslavement. So that's the idea. Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. 
I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses, and I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their holy places shall be profaned. If you couple that with the gold and silver, the idea is we're wealthy, have good positions, everything's okay, and what God is saying is, uh, no. And it doesn't say it, but you could sort of say, take that gold and that silver and forge your own chains out of it. That's just a thought that went through my mind. The only thing your gold and your silver is going to be good for is to forge your own chains out of. Don't know if that's what is meant. 25. When anguish comes, they shall seek peace, but there shall be none. Again, my translation has disaster. Evil comes upon evil. Rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and counsel from the elders. Rumor follows rumor. Conspiracy theories, right? Conspiracy theories are not just a province of the right. The left has their own. And so the idea here is there's going to be rumors terrifying people going throughout the city. They're going to seek a vision from the prophet. In other words, they're going to go to a prophet to find out what's going on. Not going to happen. While the law perishes from the priest, remember the priest's job is to teach the law, to separate between common and holy, and to divide between clean and unclean. So clean and unclean, common and holy, and to teach the Torah. What it's saying is here, the priests are not going to be able to teach Torah. In other words, you're going to be in such dire straits that one of the things that you're probably going to try and do is turn back to me. And there isn't going to be anybody that's going to be able to tell you. Prophets are going to be silent, and the priests aren't going to know the law. And then... You won't get any counsel from your elders. There won't be any good advice available to you. 27. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, and the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. By the way, this is not a quote that Yeshua used, but the concept is there. This judge not least you be judged, which so many people say means no judgment, no judgment, no judgment. That's not what it says at all. What it says is you will be judged by the standards that you yourself use. So make sure that you're using the Torah as your standard and then make sure that you are not being hypocritical in your judgment. According to their way, I will do to them, and according to their judgments, I will judge them, which tells me that their judges are corrupt. So according to their judgment, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am the Lord.